targeted things, you know, a, a session, a few hours of silence, then get together. You have to, you know, you have to. Uh, so we learned a little bit, but uh, and then we, of course, we had the silence, and a new family joined us that we we, we met through Father Kevin's. Going to Father Kevin's church, and they couldn't come to Saturday morning, so it's well, we can't really say, okay, we're. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, we, we, we talked a little bit, but we did practice in silence, and we had a, a good first foray into that. So. Where, where is this retreat? Just south of uh, about, about a 45 minutes south of Denver, in a place called Larkspur, which is between Castle Rock and Monument. <laughs> and not quite yet the Colorado Springs. Love spring. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so. All right. Yes, it is. Let us pray. Blessed right. Lord, who has caused all these scriptures written for our learning, grant to me in such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we we talked about um, maybe doing something in the prophets after we were done with our foray through the the general uh, New Testament epistles, and so I decided that we would spend a couple weeks looking at a well-known passages that are referred to by uh, scholars and people as the quote, servant songs of Isaiah, and there are four of them, and I sent them to you by email, uh, and so you all studied them, and so what would you think? I think there are five. Aren't there five? There are four. four. <laughs> I liked them. Amazing. Yeah, so, so anyways, we'll, we'll, we'll walk through them here. Uh, I want to give, we'll start with a little bit of background. I just put a, a couple of legible points on the board here to kind of walk through about Isaiah that people should know. I don't want to spend a ton of time on, um, let me get my, uh, so people can see me, uh, a ton of time um, on these. And if you're online and can't read them, I'll, I'll just read them for you so you can know what they say, and then we'll, they're on the board there. Um, <clears throat> so Isaiah the prophet, um, when he lived is dated in chapter 6, it says, it talks about a vision he had in, quote, the year the king Uzziah died. And that year is probably about 740 B.C. Okay. But one of the issues with Isaiah is that though he, he lives in the 8th century um, B.C., which is, um, if you remember, the Israel went away in two stages. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom went away in 722 B.C. So Isaiah writes before the fall of the northern kingdom. Yet he has a lot to say about the fall of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., which, as we can see, is is maybe 150-plus years after he lived. And and so this cause and because I think he's he's located he seems to be located in the southern kingdom though this stuff is happening in the north so um, the uh, this this consternates modern scholars because you know when you have a prophet writing 740 and and there's things in the book that speak of things that are very very much later uh, so it's led some 
scholars to propose a Deutero-Isaiah, um, especially because the later chapters, somewhere around 40 uh, and on, seem to speak more of, of exile and return, and even a Trito-Isaiah. Uh, but when you look at the manuscripts, there aren't any, you know, no one's found, oh, here's, here's Isaiah, and here's the second one, and here's the third one. Mm -hmm. It, it, and that's all, incidentally, that's all the board says, everything I just said, nothing else on the board other than that, so everything else I just say. Um, but it's likely that, you know, you probably have with Isaiah, you might have had a, a, a prophetic school. It doesn't necessarily mean that each and everything that Isaiah is in Isaiah's book was written, you know, he didn't necessarily, that's not the way ancient um, writing necessarily went, and you may have had schools of prophets that, but, but anyway, one of the problems with the modern scholarship, if you get into commentaries that dwell on it, is they spend an inordinate amount of time explaining what they can't explain, mm -hmm. and in lesser time um, talking about the text means. Yeah. Uh, you know, for you know, for then uh, I you know, there's there's a number of scholars that have that thing. So when you, so anyway, we're not going to spend much time with that. But if we're going to talk about Isaiah, so we're we're um, the servant. Songs would fall in the section that scholars call Deutero Isaiah, uh, although I, you know, I'm I'm not proposing that we divide Isaiah in three. I'm okay with the ambiguity of what it means. And, and um, but the, the servant songs are interesting because they are they are um, somewhat a or, or more or less ahistorical. That is to say, they don't. They don't speak to a specific historical event, but rather they speak about the, the, more about the, the character and mission of this person called the servant of the Lord. And so let's look at um, let's look at um, open your Bibles to Isaiah 42, uh, one through uh, nine is the first servant song, and. Um, It begins, Behold my servant whom I'm uphold, whom I, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. So now we, we have this, and, and you know, what's, there's a lot of reference points, obviously, throughout the Bible, you know, we're servants of God. Uh, I, I think a, um, a reasonable way to understand how this might be framed in an ancient world is if, uh, uh, the Lord, who, who um, is God of Israel, is likened unto a king, and who has a servant. Uh, you know, in a royal court, you'd have someone who, you know, the trusted servant who could be trusted to do what the king said to do, and whom my soul delights, because I know this person will do what I want him to do. So I think it's a point of reference for how this language could work in the ancient world as an analogy. Um, and we should also understand that servant has a, I don't know, a more refined sound to it, but it's no different than slave in biblical meaning. St. Paul says, Paul, I fall the servant of the Lord, means I fall the slave of the Lord. And somebody bound in debt in slavery, would there be no different word to describe him. Servant just has a sort of genteel officer, but the slave is like, oh, so that's, that's why we read, like some of the modern translations would just say slave and hit you, and that's, that's why it's good to, 
traffic in some other translations sometimes just to be hit by that. So here is the servant of, of the Lord. Now, um, and, and this is what these, these um, passages are going to refer to. Now, a question, this is, this is uh, um, it's a scholarly question about, about whom, to whom the prophet refers. Now, it's kind of like as Christians, like, duh, because there's going to be almost in every servant song, multiple times the New Testament quotes one of the Psalms or alludes to it in a pretty clear way. So, if, but what, what um, a reasonable task sometimes for scholars is to ask is, how did the writer envision this thing? And when you envision this thing, circa 740 or, or, or between, you know, between the, then 586, um, you, would, you would probably have some near-term historical person in mind that would epitomize the thing you're writing about. It probably isn't entirely. Uh, uh, so that's how people um, wrestle with it. And I don't think we should wrestle with it too much. However, it, it does. Um, there, there are <laughs> horizons of way of understanding this. So, for example, one of the big debates is this who is, is a servant? Uh, Israel in general, or is it a particular person? Now, hold on to that thought, because um, while clearly for us, in its fullest sense, the servant is going to be Jesus, the Messiah who fulfills all this, yet, because we, um, by baptism and faith, become the body of Christ, the, the things that characterize his fulfillment of the Torah and his redeeming ministry should also characterize um, his body. So there's a way in which, um, if we're participating in the ministry of Christ by being members of his body with our gifts, we should pay attention to what's significant about the servant because we should connect with that. We should, we should, um, so, so, um, but usually, if, if you're, say, you know, Jewish and you don't want to accept the Jesus interpretation, you're usually going to go, you know, some historical figure or Israel as a whole mm-hmm. or some remnant in Israel that epitomizes um, uh, what it is. And so, for example, you might have had, a, I, I, I don't know this, but in the New Testament, you might have had the Pharisees, for example, if they're reading Isaiah, they would think of perhaps themselves as the faithful Israel who is pleased, who God is pleased with, and by their zealous keeping of the law, they will they will bring about some of these things. Although it's hard to see how it rises to the level we get to Isaiah 53 of dying and all that kind of stuff. Now, so let's look at some of these things in this first song that are that are significant. Um, just this first verse, I, I want to think about my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. Let's just pause there. And what New Testament scene does that call to mind if you think all of the themes that are right there? Can I answer that? <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'm always like piping in. Um, it's where Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me, 
to bring glad tidings. Okay, but and when when Jesus says that, I mean, Connie is 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 with that. It is 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 um um that's actually a quote of Isaiah sixty one that Jesus uh, utters in the synagogue of Nazareth when he begins his ministry. He takes up the scroll and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because da-da-da. And then he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But go go back before then and actually... The baptism? Maybe, maybe, yeah, huh? the baptism. baptism. Yeah, just because that's yeah. that. <laughs> That's his first thing he does after his baptism and temptation. And so, what what about the baptism? Remember, let's think about what happened in his baptism. The dove what, comes down. The dove comes down. In so what is, the 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 um, dove represents Holy Spirit. Spirit. So I put my spirit upon him. Okay. God speaks. What does God say? This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And whom my soul delights. So we have right here um, the, the identity, if not verbatim, um, is pretty close. That, that, that this is, this is um, being identified with the, with the servant of the Lord. And this is 700 years before he's born. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, that's somewhere in that, in that neighborhood, yes. I don't quite get that. Well, he's a prophet. He can. The Holy Spirit is above all time. The Holy well, Spirit. What, 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 me, help, please explain what 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 is it that? Um... Well, how would they be writing about him seven hundred years before he's born? Well, how would they? Because they're prophets? Is but they're they? prophets. Yeah, it's because, it's because there's a prophecy here of, of something that is, is going to be fulfilled. And, and what, what I would say, um, and this is true of all Old Testament prophecy, and this is what leads people to think, well, who's he referring to, is typically Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled on two levels. So, for example... When we come to the destruction of the southern kingdom in 586 BC, and, and Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah would be a utter prophecies about that destruction, aspects of that pro- prophecy can also apply to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, and when, um, for example, and let me give a more particular example. The, the Emmanuel prophecy, the virgin will conceive a bear son, you call his name Emmanuel, clearly in our mind referring to the birth of Jesus. Uh, however, if you pay close attention to that prophecy in Isaiah, it also must mean some child born in Isaiah's lifetime who would be a sign that the threat from the north, that the alliance of Syria and the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom would fail because God gives Israel a sign. So this two horizon of prophetic fulfillment is common throughout, uh, and you know is, is that there's a near, near-term fulfillment, but the near-term fulfillment doesn't actually save Israel in a full and final way. So you always need this ultimate thing that, that Jesus comes to fulfill all of these echoed promises. 
So the idea that there was somebody in Isaiah's time, um, uh, but it does seem that that said, it does seem, however, that the servant prophecies, um, because they, 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 they seem to be particularly ahistorical, to some degree transcend that. There's not an obstacle. Clearly, this was that. Like with Isaiah, where I said, if you just read Isaiah, it was probably a child of Isaiah. But then you need, but then it's also that, 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 that there's also secondary fulfillment. You can see in, in the scriptures often, it, it often tells you what near, what the within the lifetime of the prophet fulfillment is. And then the ultimate fulfillment is, 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 occasioned by the fact that the near-term fulfillment didn't actually bring salvation in a lasting way. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um... I was just thinking of the, uh, the flood, too. I mean, Noah saw, I mean, God told him a flood was going to happen before it happened. This is just a longer spread of time. But also, the flood represents, you know, how we're saved, out of the well, and this, I think, what you're, what you're, what Cheryl's getting at, I think, is right: is that God works in kind of repeated patterns, yeah. so that the, the the prophetic word that that applies to salvation in the one historical setting still, you know. So, for example, we saved, you know, by Noah from the flood, you had to get in the ark. You know, to to be saved by Jesus from the coming judgment, you need to get into the ark, which is his body, the church. That's so these things uh, correspond. Uh, um. So let's let's uh, let's move forward then. So so this is we see that the hearkening to um, to the baptismal scene where he is revealed to be the Lord's anointed upon whom God's spirit rests and in whom God, with whom God is well pleased. Um, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, this is something that we, I think we, we typically don't dwell enough on what it means to be bringing forth justice. What, well, somebody asked the question. When, when, when the prophet Isaiah is talking about justice, what standard of justice is he referring to? Where, where's the standard of justice that must that he will bring? Where's it recorded? In the Torah, yeah, exactly, exactly where it's recorded in the in the Torah that that will bring forth justice. And with regard to the Torah and the justice it commands, what is Israel's problem? They left him. They've been unfaithful. They've been they haven't been just. Um, and so 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 for example, um, let's go on it says what it, some of these these are some beautiful verses um, that um, he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastland shall wait for his law. Now, I, I, um, 
the um, this is quoted verbatim and applied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 verses 18 through 21 just after he heals somebody a bruised it, uh, mm -hmm. and so the New Testament is very clear there's no question about whom, whom this in the fullest sense is, is referring to well, let's unpack what it's saying here what's, it, what's that What's that imply? He won't cry out, won't raise up his voice. A bruised reed he won't break. A smoking flax he won't quench. What's, what's the gist of that? You have to ask for him. Or he, he doesn't come after you. Okay. Uh, well, um, he didn't cry out and, and uh, call down angels at his time of crucifixion. That he went as a lamb to slaughter, and then I separate these things out a little bit. Um, that's that part, and then the next part, a bruised reed. I think of how kind and gentle he is to even the smallest uh, amount of faith that you have. That even you know a childlike faith, or even the mustard seed, you know, amount of faith that he will honor that, and that he will not stamp that out. And um, okay, and what about um, in terms of uh, a smoking flax? So smoking flax are seeing like a uh, you know a fire in the field that's about ready to go out, Liquor. or a a, 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 a a bruised reed, a broken. Um, what might that refer to in terms of like circumstances of life? We waver in our faith. But what about conditions of people? They're about to break. Yeah, so the downtrodden people whose lives are holding on by a thread. He seemed like he, he was so, he was always going to the disenfranchised, those on the edge, those not in the place of honor, like, you know, Bartholomew by the side of the road and people are telling him to shut up, you know. He goes to those very people. It's, yeah. And one of the things that, that we should note about this, back to the idea of justice, is that um, the Torah actually legislates that you do that. Mm -hmm. That you don't harvest your whole field, you leave food for the poor to eat, mm -hmm. that you forgive debts every seven years. So the Torah actually um, commands Israel to be to be just to those who have left by creating real boundaries about the degree to which um, wealth can be accumulated at the expense of the poor. And one of the big uh, complaints, Isaiah well, has a complaint about the buying up of property. You weren't supposed to do that in Israel. You literally couldn't sell the land. Um, you could, uh, you, your pride got apportioned inheritance and if you fell into debt you could borrow against it until the jubilee year but then at the jubilee year you had to, you had to be given back to you uh, the, the exception was if you build a walled city people could you know, sell a condo or something you know? <laughs> I guess some of the property within the walled city could be owned and traded but the monopoly game that's so common in our time was absolutely forbidden by the Torah, but it was played by Israel. 
Because what happens when that happens is it, it becomes increasingly too expensive for people who don't have any resources to live. If you, if you, you know, and, and I, I'm just saying, don't go home and say Richard Scarlett was is a communist. <laughs> um, but you're blind if we don't understand that that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And even to think about, well, it's Irvine Company land. Well, who said so? <laughs> it's God's land. And there's a way you could do it. I don't mean that, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for the over. I just, just be aware that there are things embedded in the way we go about things that aren't in accordance with what God said in the Torah. And that creates a problem. And it's exactly what happened in Israel. So when, he, when uh, my point here with regard to this verse is, um, his concern for these people on the margins would be a fulfillment of the Torah. God's not just saying, you know, be kind to those who are downtrodden. He's saying, don't, don't take their property and not give it back in the year of Jubilee. Don't lend them money and not cancel the debt at the seventh year. Don't harvest all the corners you can feel. Make sure they have something to eat. Those are all... Um, and can you, there's, a, there's a biblical story, uh, a whole book, about somebody who benefits from this. Ruth. Ruth. Poor woman comes back from Moab with a mother-in-law. She goes and gleans in the field. Because there was a famine and all that. Well, because and because the Torah said, when the poor don't don't and you said now we don't harvest corn, but also when you when you harvest your field and you spill some grain, don't pick it up. Let the poor come get that. And that's what Ruth did. She goes out there and and gets that, and and then Boaz, you know, all that kind of stuff happens. But my point here is that the that that the justice this servant is bringing is Torah justice that Israel is not enacting. Because the Torah itself makes provision for people who are not doing well to be taken care of. Um, and, and, and I think it's, it's um, to Diane's point, I think the merger of life circumstance and faith is that, yeah, when you're, when you're getting beaten down in faith, it's like you're holding on by a thread. And Jesus isn't going to crush that. He's going to um, receive and be and be um, patient with those who are who are hanging on by a thread in life. Um, but notice how often justice is 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 here, and it means. And justice here, and this is something that's very important because I, I, there's so much talk about justice, you know, since uh, pandemics and riots. And biblically, justice is very much rooted in uh, creation and, 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 and the fact of creation and its embodiment in the Torah in this way, that first the, the idea there is one God um, who is made human beings in his image. And because of that fact, there are two essential axes of, of justice. One is justice towards God. Justice requires that we give God the worship he is due. So if we don't worship God, if we don't take what he's given us and offer get back to him in thanksgiving. Right? If we don't worship 
the God who made us. We are unjust people. And this is one of the problems of discussions of justice in our time, is it skips that. And the reason that it, you can't skip it is, if I'm supposed to give you the justice you're due as made an image of God, but I'm not giving God the justice you do as God, I can't make that logical connection. And my, and my horizontal justice is necessarily going to be skewed by some idea I have made up of what is fair. And so this comes right in the New Testament where Jesus says, and as much you did the least of these, you did it to me. Why? Because the least of these bear my image. So we're honoring God and then we're we're treating others as made in the image of God. And this doesn't mean um, not holding people accountable, because there's a you know, it, it, you can have a a romance uh, of, of the poor and needy that they're all just, you know. A lot, you know, people made bad decisions and things happen. So that doesn't mean you have boundaries, but it means justice means you care about them. And and I think we're we're in one of the classes we're talking about through the balance of um, acting for someone's true good, which sometimes involves hard choices and caring deeply about them. So God loves us, but that means He'll tell us if we did wrong, you got to repent. It's not loved. Oh, well, it's okay. And as we get into that, if we get our, if we move away from God and His His Word and will, and start loving out of our own resources, we get we get um, disordered. He will not, verse 4 says, he will not fail nor be discouraged until he has established justice. You're a fail or discouraged. Um, so what does that speak to? He goes all the way to the cross to death and resurrection. There won't be a word for him all the way. Victory. Yeah. Conquer. Huh? Persevere. Well, Conquer. I, I, I think is what I'm looking for. He won't fail or be discouraged. Because if you get discouraged, you're, you're, you tend to want to give up because it gets, you know, the, the task is overwhelming. So I think I'll just bail because I don't want him. So he, the point about this, as in his in his pursuit of justice, he's not going to give up the task when it gets heavy. Mm-hmm. He's going to see it to the end, all the way to the cross and all that. I mean, for us, this is also a reminder that in him, as we pursue lives that honor God and give God the justice he's due and attempt to love those around us in a good way, um, we also need to not fail or be discouraged because sometimes that doesn't get rewarded in a temporal way and we need to to learn not to be um, sidetracked by that. So he established justice in the earth and coastlands wait for his law. Now, this is... um, the second time, then, in verse 1, he said, you bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And they hear the coastlands wait for his law. And this is the theme of the serpent. He's not just, um, he's not just concerned with Israel. And this is, this is also um, a point of the Torah that is missed, and it's also a point of church that is missed when we become uh, provincial and we see God's choice 
and uh, delight as something that is, pertains to our specialness individually. But Israel's vocation in being faithful to the Torah as the embodiment of, of God, God's people embodying his will in his life was that they would then be a witness to the world and the nation would be drawn to the worship of the one true God through the witness of his people. So one of the, um, the condemnations of Old Testament Israel is because they were not faithful to the Torah and were disobedient, quite far from being a witness to the nations, they actually, the nations spoke ill of the God of Israel because look at those people, look what they're doing. And this, St. Paul points this out in Romans 1 or 2 somewhere. Um, and notice too, so therefore in the church is our embodiment that as, as our carrying out of the, um, the new commandment, which we will the command to love, which again is not just oh, love, you know, it's a sentimental reality, it is certainly has an emotional component, but it's to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, love and love our neighbors itself. But Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Even the church, the purpose of love is is witness. People see, oh, this is this is what happens. Well, these people are really following this God, and that's different. What's this about? That's true witness. And I think this is a big problem in our time now uh, where we've... Witness has drifted away from the embodied witness of the community, which in its worship of God and receiving of God's will and word <clears throat> bears fruit that that others can see, and this bears witness that this is a different thing, into the more contentious idea of arguing uh, about God in merely intellectual debates about God. Um, and this is what I think characterizes, you know, a lot of the discourse we see on, on media, you know, Christians are way in. I don't care if it's a political thing or something else, we become argumentative about a point. But I think that, I don't mean that, I want to be clear, I don't mean that um, there's not a place for uh, arguing for the truth in a public sphere, but we have to be very careful not to be just mean and nasty like everyone else is. And winning an argument there isn't worth all the cost you know, is the ends do not justify the means. The means themselves are the witness. And um, I think there's a lot of, of the reality of because people don't see necessarily always, I, I think this is very much um, a, a variable reality. Like you know, the church, just like this church is the big a big thing with a lot of different manifestations. <clears throat> there are some people who are being very faithful, and some people who are being very unfaithful and and, and uh, contentious. But I think in general, many people's witness of the church is not, is not like this is a different community that lives and is transformed by the love of Christ. Sometimes they see they're just as difficult or, or more so than everyone else I see. And so 
Um, we're called to be a witness. That doesn't mean we're not saying that things are, are they're wrong or wrong or right or right, but it also means that um, our goal is not to win arguments in public spheres. Our goal is to bear faithful witness. It doesn't matter whether people, so whether people respond to it or not, the faithfulness of the witness itself is the goal of the church. And that's why Jesus will be raised from the dead, because he was faithful unto death. That's why St. Paul says, be faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. Our own justification is rooted in our own faithful witness, embodying the kind of things he talks about. So, But back to the original point, the coastlands wait for the law is that um, his faithfulness will fulfill Israel's vocation to be a witness to the world. And we see in Christ, of course, on Pentecost, the spirit, you know, the, the, the various tongues, and then the, the witness of the church goes out into all the world. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. So this is, this is God speaking. And where we have in your Bibles um, that word Lord uh, there in verse 5, where you um, see um, it in small caps. Um, in, in Exodus, where Moses asked God his name, and he said, I am that I am, um, that It was historically transliterated as Jehovah. It's typically transliterated now as Yahweh. It's four Hebrew consonants. Wherever you see in your Bible the word Lord in small caps, that's that name of God. The I am Verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give you I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. So this, he will keep his servant. He's called you in, in righteousness. And so, and, and this is um, interesting. There's a hymn, uh, uh, I'll strengthen you, help you, cause you stand up, held by my righteous, omnipotent hand. I think that comes from this verse. Hold your hand. So, God will support the servant in the work he does. He's called, uh, he's, he's sustained, held, and you know, keep, keep, and give you. And so, as we, in Christ, we understand we have a vocation to be righteous and just. And God holds us in that and keeps us in it. And we can be a witness to people if we, if being just is more important than the result. Somebody said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. It's a problem of our time when we end at, when we aim at um, the end and just the means to do it. Uh, justice requires that we just, and it, it, the thing about being just is that's the, the, the blessing of God comes in response to that. 
Uh, that's what sets the world aright. It, when we're governed by his word, then the blessing of God naturally follows from that thing, just like um, a seed planted in the ground and seed and watered will grow. So verse 7, to open blind eyes. So a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now, um, open blind eyes, and we can certainly see this in the New Testament on two levels. What are the two levels? Spiritual blindness and physical blindness. Okay. So the blind, the blind Bartimaeus, somebody referred to, you know, Jesus, I may receive my sight. But it's interesting in that passage, um, if you can think back to where we began our movement towards Lent on, um, Quin, well, Quinquagesima was, was, a, was a Sunday before Lent. That's where we had the story of blind Bartimaeus as our gospel. And Jesus said, uh, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Uh, and he'll be delivered to the Gentiles and mocked and scourged and spitted on, and they'll kill him the third day he'll rise again. And what it says right after that in Luke's Gospel is, it says the disciples understood none of these things, and the saying was hid from them. But in, in Luke's Gospel, that story goes on to talk about the healing of Bartimaeus. Jesus heals Bartimaeus of his blindness, as a foreshadowing. And so when we get to the resurrection stories in Luke's gospel, um, one thing we'll get in, in the um, upper room, he appears to them and he, he opens their understanding that might comprehend the scriptures. That is, he gives them sight. And he says it was necessary for Christ to suffer and enter into his glory. So, he, he, so the sight here is, is not just, I physically see it, that's part of it, but it's also the spiritual sight to grasp the reality of things, and specifically to grasp the necessity of the cross as the pathway to the resurrection. Because that's what they didn't understand in after Jesus said, Behold, go to Jerusalem. They didn't understand, well, you're the Messiah, why are you going to beat up? Why are you going to die? And the aha was, oh, that was necessary. When we get to Isaiah 53, where it talks more fully about the suffering and the passion, you get, oh, somebody had to fulfill all that the Torah said, both in his life of justice and in his faithful death, in order to make the promise, promises of God available to everybody. To bring the prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now, um, we have to remember here that the ancient world didn't have jails like we have. So, this isn't really talking about, um, you know, opening the gates of San Quentin and letting all the murderers go. It's talking about, these are largely debtors' prisons where people are, are in bondage because they haven't paid their debts, which should be canceled, because the Torah says so, has had provision to cancel them. 
And this is something we get in what was called the Jubilee year, and that's um, um, Kanye mentioned that to, be, to begin the, the uh, passage, he begins his ministry with in the Nazareth synagogue in Luke chapter 4, Isaiah 61, that we also read, I think it's the second Sunday after Christmas when we get it, um, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he is you know, going to preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, praying liberty to the captives, um, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What this is, is the Jubilee year of freedom, which it appears had never really been ha happening. When the 50th year came, we were supposed to set everyone free and reset, reset the game. Those who were holding on to the money and, and, and people in debt, they wouldn't do that. So Jesus, I'm finally going to do that. So the debtor's prison is, is again, these are people who are unjustly under um, uh, captivity because uh, they are um, be, because they, they the, the, the debts that should have been canceled were not canceled. Now, metaphorically, obviously, we, we see the the larger sense of, of, of the captivity to sin. We're under the bondage of our fallen desires. There's nothing we can do to get out of them. And Christ, by his spirit and the power he gives us to begin to, to gain freedom, sets us free from that prison house as well. Bishop, I like I, I like your connecting that the you know open blind eyes and deceptive the prisoners free who sit in darkness. It's like before we have that conversion experience with Christ, it's like we're in this darkness. And when we have that conversion, when we are baptized and we receive the Holy Spirit, it's like we come out of that prison of sin and darkness and blindness. And we see, we suddenly see. That's such a beautiful passage to me. I think I, I think we can we can connect this rightly back right back to Genesis three, because um, I I don't know that we always uh, understand the, what the implications of of the first sin were, but if we understand that human beings lived in communion with God by by the act of creation, their relationship with God was. In, in maturity, in a maturity sense, an infantile or toddler one. They were just spiritual children. But they could see God like a child could see uh, a parent in the right way. And the disobedience where they had, went and hid from God in the bushes caused a sort of blindness. They, they weren't able to see God in the right way anymore. They were afraid of him. And they're afraid of him not because God wanted to hurt them, but because they 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 taken on guilt of they've been separated, and when you're separated from God and the Spirit, you can't see. And so, um, by the gift of the Spirit, by the reconnection to 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 God in Christ, um, and the gift of life, we are um, restored to to sight. And Saint Paul talks about this. You know, about the desire to make, make all, all people see, you know, to understand, to get this thing. 
that's a, and and St. Paul makes a big point in Corinthians about that you can't really see with, without the Spirit. That you can't understand spiritual truth unless you have the Spirit to let you understand spiritual truth. And this is why some people can look at the Scriptures and like, what do you, you don't get it. And but you can see by analogy, like if you've ever, um, and 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 we also have to train ourselves to it. Our whole framework of life and worship, from coming to the liturgy, we're being trained to see God. How do we see God? We see God as we come to Him through repentance and faith and the Word of God and and, and worship. The eyes are, are gradually opened, and a, apart from that training, we can't see it. It's like, and this happens in um, every field of endeavor. Uh, like if you want to, if you're going into science, you know, you got to put a microscope in front of your red book and use this analogy. And so you go look in that, and you're looking at something in a petri dish or under under glass. You have no idea what you're looking at. So someone comes and says, "Now do you see those things?" And then. To acclimate to it's like those pictures um, that you know where you can have the beautiful woman and the hag. It's how you look at it. You have to train your eyes to see it. Uh, it's also like I mean I would say someone like Elena, who's a, a nature bird lover, she'll walk through a hike and she'd be seeing all kinds of things that we didn't. I, I wouldn't see. Mm -hmm. Actually, when we we did our little contemplative retreat in Denver this last weekend, the kids like Nicholas. Help me out with that. He says, "Then when they give me a stop, like it, like just walk and be attentive to what you see." Yeah. Quite apart from some big spiritual exercise, like this, <laughs> what's what's all bird? A, a thing, you know. Just be be attentive, and then as we begin to see, um, so that's the sight is to see things rightly. And fallen humanity, and I would say this is a problem of our culture, is that. It's not just they don't like understand the verse about Jesus. The whole way of life we live that aims mostly at temporal comfort and temporal happiness that dismisses God and creates its own sense of justice, not out of the Torah, but out of somebody's sense of it, is blind. And the fact is it's not working at all. It's not creating more justice or creating more division. It's not setting people free, it's making people captive. So, um, so, so the, the open blind eyes bring out prisoners, darkness out of the prison house, light and darkness, which is very much a new creation imagery. Light shines and someone's dark, we come out of prison into light. Very much caught up in our uh, resurrection celebration that we'll, we'll have here a week from Saturday. I am the Lord, that is my name, I, my glory, I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Which is, um, suggests his glory he's giving to his servant. And um, um, St. Paul will talk about the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So that is the first of the servant songs. 
<clears throat> that, that talks about the servant going out with the Spirit of God to bring justice and and those that and, and to care for those who are um, beaten down. The um, second servant song is Isaiah 49, 1 through 3. And um, so if you want to turn to that, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 13, I should say. So I'll, I'll read through what kind of. Uh, listen, O coastlands, to me. This, to the, again, the coastlands are, you know, the spreading abroad of this, the proclaiming of this beyond um, just the immediate vicinity of Israel, so the Gentiles. And take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me. Now, in the first servant song, God is talking. This servant song, begins with the servant himself talking. Um, the Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And we should be aware of the word matrix, uh, a synonym for womb. We're dealing with Hebrew poetry here, which always has a parallelism to it. Um, so you see it in this, listen no coats, lands, and take heed you people from afar. You people from afar, is parallel with coastlands and defines it. This is the Hebrew poetry is is characteristic, of course, of the Psalms, but prophetic literature also partakes of that. If if you want to dive more clearly um, into that in some depth, there's a book, there's a lot of books, but the one uh, by this uh, Hebrew, actually Jewish man, not Christian, it's called The Art of Biblical Poetry by Robert Alter. He is the guy who has translated the entire Old Testament uh, and his commentary right up there on the three books up there on the, the white ones. So the third, the third um, section over the second from the top, yeah. that's uh, Robert Alter's. Um, he's, he's actually literally translated every word of the Old Testament of English with commentary. Mm-hmm. He's a Hebrew scholar. But he's written The Art of Biblical Narrative, The Art of Biblical Poetry, and it's insightful when you understand it. So... Um, it helps you understand. Listen, no coastlands. You're talking about people from afar. Generally, that's what that means. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. So that matrix and womb are parallel. He's made mention of my name. <clears throat> now, the mission to the nations also hearkens um, at the beginning of the call of Jeremiah. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah, although he's, he's, he's ordained as a prophet to the nations, and at the end of Jeremiah, there's um, there's messages to all these nations. They're they're not particularly um, uplifting, but I want you know it's interesting though if you think of when you get to Saint Paul in Romans, where he's talking about all the sin uh, Israel and the nations. It's not an idea he's just made up. It comes kind of from Jeremiah who's convicting Israel is going to judgment for their sin, but then he talks about the nations. And even Amos, the prophet, talks about the sins of all the surrounding nations. So the idea that everyone stands guilty before the Lord is, is um, and then, therefore, as the prelude, 
to calling them back into the Jubilee. Now you may, your sins may be forgiven if you put faith in the Lord's servant who is Jesus. Verse 2, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me, made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Um, that idea of, 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 the, of the word of God as a sword, uh, St. Paul in Ephesians, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of mm. God, comes from that very same thing. Mm. All the shaft. But notice that the word of so the sword, the piercing thing, is not a physical weapon, it's the word of God which has this piercing, uh, both convicting and saving quality if you receive it, and also this um, quality of judgment if you run from it. If you don't if you don't submit yourself to it. So for example, we're getting that in the um, in the Exodus narrative where Pharaoh's hardening his heart. He is resisting the word of God. And um you can shut the door if you confess. Um that uh, he's gonna be judged by it because if God speaks, what he has said will happen. And you can either conform to it and be saved by it or resist it and be judged by it. That's the idea. So here's the word um, that, that is coming. Call a shaft, he has hidden me, like an arrow to the quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant of Israel, whom I would glorify. Now, here he identifies the servant directly with Israel, but throughout the, song, the songs, you can't simply say he's talking about the whole nation who's also under judgment. So somehow, what you the best way to understand this, and this is kind of what Jesus is portrayed in the New Testament, is he epitomizes Israel. He, in his person, fulfills the national vocation. The, um, the the gospel the best or most clearly articulates this is Matthew's gospel, where where you know Matthew has Jesus going down to Egypt and coming back from Egypt, you know, replaying the narrative of Israel and um, and fulfilling it, and then and therefore the wilderness narrative is a replaying of Israel's wilderness experience only faithfully. So, here is the true Israel. <clears throat> then, then I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing, and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord, and my work with my God. This harkens a little bit back to what we talked about in the last chapter, where he won't fail to be discouraged. But it seems as though the labor he has done has not been, been good, and this is what we're going to get to on Good Friday. Like, oh, this seems to work. But he will trust his reward is with the Lord. <clears throat> so we must, must uh, though we get discouraged and overwhelmed, continue on knowing. Verse 5. And now the Lord says, who formed me from his womb to be a servant, bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. And that's kind of that uh, uh, exile illusion, because the, the idea of Isaiah here is that Israel's been scattered in judgment, 
Babylon. And so now, through the servant, he will gather Israel to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Verse 6. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved one of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. What um, evening prayer canticle borrows from this this verse? Um, John the Baptist's father? The one yeah, that Mary, Mary's, Mary's son. What's oh, yeah, Mary's. No. The Magnificat? Light, light. light, light. Hey. Simeon's song. Mm-hmm. Simeon's song. Right. Now, Lord, now let us not say, servant, depart in peace according to thy word. Mine eyes have seen that salvation shall prepare for the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people of Israel. Comes kind of right out of this verse here. Preserve ones of Israel and a light to the Gentiles. So Simeon is is in a way there confirming that Jesus is the servant by his prophetic word. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor, the servant of rulers, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. This kind of is an epiphany theme here, the kings. Gentile shall come to thy life and kings to the brightness of thy rising, that through this work of this faithful servant, nations and rulers will be drawn, and that's an historical reality of nations being converted. Uh, probably the most famous early one being Constantine. And the three kings. <laughs> three kings. By tradition, but also by Psalm 72. The three is usually um, related to the idea that since you have three gifts, you must add three kings. Then after you say there are three kings. Hmm. (laughs) Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritage. Now that verse is is quoted verbatim by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, St. Paul says, in an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So he applies that, that, um, that call to, to people he's preaching to. And that would be the day, I think, most particularly, the, the day of crucifixion and resurrection. I've helped you. I've, I've saved you. And the idea that we are called to, to believe and be raised from the dead 
That's why I think St. Paul says now is the acceptable time. And then, as we follow it, to be a witness to others as well. We'll go a little bit, the covenants over here, just to finish this passage. Verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourself. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. Same themes from the previous one about prisoners being set free and those who are in darkness um, you know, coming out and being fed, being taken care of, um, which, um, again, has the sense of the very physical provision for all these things that have this deeper, you know, the, the, the captivity to sin, the darkness of understanding coming into the light, and the way that Jesus, as the bread of life, feeds us uh, with himself. Verse 10. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, nor heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. Now, um, the first there, they shall neither hunger nor thirst, nor shall nor heat nor sun strike them, is quoted just about verbatim in Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 16. Um, but how about the, the springs of water who will guide them? And what does the, the hunger nor thirst, we think of any words of Jesus that pertain to that? I am the living water. Yeah. <laughs> A Samaritan with well, I'll give you living water. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, um, in John 6, he who comes to me will never hunger, he believes in me, will never thirst. So Jesus himself is fulfillment of those things. Mm-hmm. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the, re- the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Behold, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. The Lord has comforted his people, and he will have mercy on his afflicted. So the servants fulfilled the Torah, now proclaiming it uh, to, to all people who did not get justice before because of Israel's disobedience. We'll stop there. We'll pick up. Uh, if we can highlight that next time we move on to Isaiah 50. And 53, if we have time. Okay. Let us pray. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Yeah. Thanks for being with us, Jim, Phyllis, Connie, Ed, Mimi. Last week you mentioned that your son was losing I have to run off rather quickly to a lunch meeting. You so did. All right. One of my sons came with you all. All right. We'll be glad you're back. Okay. okay. Well, I hope he's not on it much. I just know he used it to, to show me this one. See, there's no such... Dog's not real. Because of a dumb TikTok that was like... See, the earth says, the Bible says the earth is flat. And I'm like, <laughs> so the next day we had a morning prayer that the round world that you have made, and I sent that verse to him. God knows how to defend it, too. Thank you.
I put my videos on TikTok to counterbalance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>